you have your Bibles this morning, would you open them up to James chapter 3? We're continuing our Faith That Lives series. Of course, um, we're sure by now all of you have your Bibles because uh, you hear about this every week. And we're going to be preaching straight out of the Word of God every time you come here. That's our goal. So you need to be bringing your Bibles. If for some reason you do not have one, there is one right in the back of that pew that's right in front of you. James chapter 3, and while you're turning there, if you're not there yet, let me just tell you a brief story that will set the, the plate for what you're going to be dining on this morning from the Word of God. At, at an evening social for army officers and their wives, the commanding general of the base had been given a special award, and he proceeded to just drone on and on and on in a long speech of thanks. And a lieutenant mumbled to the woman at his side, why would they award him a prize is beyond me. He's nothing but a stupid old windbag. The woman turned to him, her jaw set, and said, Lieutenant, do you know who I am? No, ma'am. I'm the wife of the man you just called the stupid old windbag. I see, said the young lieutenant, and do you know who I am? No, I don't, said the general's wife. Good said the lieutenant as he disappeared into the crowd. Have you had moments like that? (laughs) You know I have, if you know me very well. Sometimes you say things and you wish you could just take them back, but the proverb says that our words are one of three things that once released can never be brought back. You see, the early church friends had a serious problem with the tongue. And the problem manifested itself at the top with the teachers. You see, there was backbiting, there was slander, there was gossip, there was criticism, there was misuses of of authority. This is what was happening in the early church. So when James wrote this letter, he's writing to all these churches who are struggling in these areas. And he's targeting those who are the most influential of the early churches. Listen, he's targeting the, the teachers. See, they wield incredible power in both constructively and sometimes destructively. They have the potential to change lives, so their tongues must be harnessed. And James gives these teachers a command. He gives them a caution, and he gives them a consolation. Let's take a look this morning, but let's pray and ask the Lord to help us receive his word. Lord, thank you. Father, that uh, those who are here this morning who have put their faith in you, have put a faith that you have given to them and to the Lord who has saved them through his own death. And Lord, I pray that you would, by faith, open our ears, open our eyes and let us see in your word wonderful things. And Lord, may those who teach this morning, and I certainly am one of them, Lord, I pray that we would hear from you. And Lord, be encouraged. And in Jesus' name, amen. James gives a command that's number one on your outline if you're taking notes. Let's look and see what he says in the first part of verse 1 of chapter 3 in James. He says, not many of you should presume to be teachers. Now there is a world of first century culture behind this command. This is a command in the Greek. It's an imperative. Let not many of you become teachers. And this culture, once you and I understand it, it begins to make sense of why James would say something that we would think 
from a church leadership who has problems staffing all of our teaching needs, we would think this is audacious, James. What are you saying this for? You might think that the churches who read this inspired letter might have just said that, James, we're having problems filling teaching positions. Why are you telling us? Let not many of you presume, presume to be teachers. But friends, listen, here's the culture. They didn't have a problem having too few teachers. They had a problem of having too many teachers. They had a problem because too many people not fit for the job wanted to preach and they wanted to teach and they wanted to lead. If we were to bring it into today's understanding, small groups and and Sunday school classes, the church, especially these Jewish churches. You remember, these are the Jewish believers scattered throughout the, the world. These Jewish churches that James is writing to, you got to remember this. This is going to start to crystallize for you and help you make sense of why he's saying this. These churches were air. They came from the synagogues. And synagogues highly honored teachers. And they encouraged participation, for instance. When you went to a synagogue in first century Judaism... If you were a Jewish male, if you were a respected Jewish male, you could get up if you wanted to and pull a scroll out, open it up, and teach all those in attendance. They were places for open discussion. You remember Mark chapter 1, Jesus, who this was not his home synagogue. He was not the leader of this synagogue. But Mark 1 says Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. So besides rabbis... Any respected Jewish man could be given the opportunity to speak in the synagogues. And this continued in the early church because churches, the beginning Jewish churches, came out of the synagogue environment. You see, in Judaism, highly honored teachers became rabbis. A rabbi, by the way, was every and any Jewish child's highest calling. Rabbis had high status. Now, listen, this is all going to start making sense for you why James is telling them not to presume, many of them, to presume to be teachers. Rabbis had high status in Jewish society. In fact, the very title of rabbi meant my great one. You know, I've almost been thinking of asking you to forget calling me Pastor Tim, just call me great one. I couldn't, yeah, no, that's what I would get, so I wouldn't even ask. They were given great respect, obviously, unlike today. In fact, <laughs> one's duty to help a rabbi, this is, this is mind-boggling. And most of you don't understand this, and you're going to understand it right now. One's duty to help a rabbi exceeded the responsibility to help one's parents. Parents, you see, only brought a person into this world while rabbis help bring you into the world of eternity. If a rabbi and one's parents were both captured by an enemy, it was your duty, O oh fellow first century Jews, to ransom the rabbi first. Rabbis were influential. They were noted. They were highly esteemed. It was considered praiseworthy to take a rabbi and provide for all his needs. You see that even with Jesus Christ. How many of you knew that Jesus' ministry was supported by a handful of women? Luke chapter 8, 1 through 3. After this, Jesus 
traveled from one town and village to another proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. You have Mary, you have Joanna, you have uh, Susanna and many others. And these women were helping to support them out of their own means. So it was a duty to be able to take a rabbi, a great one, and, and lend them their support financially. See, James is addressing a problem in these early churches that many of these teachers wanted to be teachers because, listen, they lusted after respect. They craved the power and they wanted too badly the position. Do you remember that there was virtually, I've taught you this on two occasions so far in the series, there was no middle class in Roman first century world. And there was no social ladder for a person in the lowest class to be able to climb up to the upper class. And so the way that you were born, the class in which you were born into, in almost every occasion, was the class that you left this world in. There was no going to college and bettering yourself with a degree so that you could get a job and exceed your parents' expectations. It was just not possible. But the position of a teacher in this explosive community called the early church, friends, listen, it was an opportunity. It was a way to get respect. It was a way to get power. It was a way to have authority. And the position of rabbi, by the way, had always been rife with wrong motives. This is what Jesus was saying in Matthew 23 regarding the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. They love to be greeted in the marketplaces and they love to have all men call them rabbi, great one. See, that was the whispery pull at the hearts of these teachers that was undergirding James's seemingly mysterious command. Let not many of you presume to be teachers. See, he's not discouraging people from communicating truth. He's not trying to discourage people from giving others the insight from God's word. See, he's building on what he's already said. Take your Bibles and just flip them back one page, if you would, please. Chapter 1, verse 26. You remember when James wrote, If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself, and his religion is worthless. Remember that word worthless? It means barren. It means fruitless. It means to have no redemptive purpose to it. See, nowhere, and you must listen to this, especially teachers in the church, listen. Nowhere, nowhere is the relationship between faith and deeds more evident than in our speech. Does your speech, does my speech reveal that we have biblical saving faith? What does a church, a teacher in the church do? He or she speaks for God. And throughout the history of the church, this position It's been misused. Look at Paul's words in Timothy. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Remember that faith that springs forth righteous living. Some have wandered away from these and turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. So all all of what I've told you so far, 
is to try to help open your eyes to why James would say, let not many of you presume to be teachers. He impresses upon them the seriousness of the responsibility that teachers must teach in the church from a heart that is clear of selfish motives. You know, the great Scottish preacher John Knox, he was so burdened by the responsibility to declare the word of God faithfully that the first time he preached in a pulpit, he wept uncontrollably. You know what they had to do? Some people in the front pew had to come up and get John and escort him off of the pulpit until he could get control of himself. And then when he did, he came back up and he he preached his sermon. It was such a burden to faithfully teach and preach the word of God. I learned that in the very first time that I was charged to seriously preach from this pulpit. I had filled in every once in a while, but Pastor Dean, some of you may remember, he took about a seven-week sabbatical. And I was charged to preach six of those seven weeks, and I did a mini-series from Ephesians chapter 3, and I, I still remember it embarrassed me, and I didn't understand what came over me, but I remember the first time I stood in that pulpit with the weight of God's Word on my shoulders, with the responsibility to deliver it faithfully and joyfully and clearly, I began to weep. I didn't know, why am I crying? Why am I weeping? And I understood later, it's a great weight. Friends, are you teachers in God's church? Examine your heart, weigh your motives. And if you continue to teach faithfully, declare God's word with the highest responsibility, don't prepare the night before. Don't rely just on curriculum that's already been preformed for you. That curriculum doesn't know the unique context of your students. Be a student of the word, know his word, declare it joyfully. Why? Because of the very next point of James. He's given us a command, number two. He's given us a caution. Look at what it says in the second part of verse one. Because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. James gives a good reason for his command to be taken seriously. See, he's echoing the teacher, the teaching of his Lord and his brother, Jesus Christ. Here's what Jesus says, Matthew 12. But I tell you that men will have to give account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. You know what? A lot of you have read that verse before. You know what that careless word means in the Greek? It means words not what a lot of you may have thought, words that you just didn't think before you uttered. It means words that you uttered but had no power and had no power of God's Spirit, had no fruit. They were barren. They produced no change in the one who heard. That's what it means to utter careless words. Jesus says, if we utter words that have no fruit, have no power in people's lives, then those words will be judged. We will be judged. See, there's an accountability that is higher for those who teach the word of God. This is what James says, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Now, some people don't like that. But friends, listen, there's no way to get out from this. I know I've tried. 
It's what he says. You know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. That phrase, judged more strictly, it's literally translated a greater judgment because you know that we who teach will experience a greater judgment. That's what he's saying. He said, listen, all of these people that James was writing to knew that those who teach have a higher responsibility and accountability. It's what he says. You know. He's not teaching new information here. What he's doing is he's doing what I'm doing this morning and I'm doing this morning what he's already done. And that is take the bar and the standard of God's teachers in his church and put it back to where it ought to be. Because it slipped in the early church. People were getting into the position of teacher because they wanted the power. They wanted the influence. They wanted the position. And James says, that's not why you ought to teach. Why is the teacher of the word of God to undergo a greater judgment? Because, listen, to claim to know the word of God. And listen to this. To claim to know the word of God and to claim, if I claim to know the word of God and I claim that God has given me a charge to deliver it. Friends, listen, it is for me then to hold the power to influence your life. If I don't influence your life, I quit. That's my goal. But if I'm influencing your life, I better have been called to the pulpit. I better have been called to this position. And if I'm here because I want to be here for my motives, then I better hang it up. You know what? Years ago in 1991, I went into the Masters of Divinity program for my graduate work. I had to read two books. I took two classes, a theology class and a counseling class. And in the counseling class, they made us read a book by Dr. Lewis McBurney. And Dr. Lewis McBurney and his wife have a Colorado retreat that's designed to minister to missionaries and pastors and those in the ministry that are burned out or have fallen out of ministry. And he gave five reasons. I'll never forget this. I was in an apartment in Lynchburg, Virginia. I had just been married to my wife. I was sitting in our bedroom on the edge of the bed when I'm reading these five reasons that men burn out in ministry. And number three reason was because men sometimes go into ministry to please their earthly father. Friends, when I heard that, when I read that, God took a bucket of water and threw it right in my face and seemed and opened me up from a life that I was living. I see I never could get my father's approval. But it drove me to get everybody's approval. And I was going into ministry because maybe I could get everybody's approval when I preached the word of God. And when God opened my eyes, I got out of the ministry track and went into the counseling track, which I was already in. And it was years later after God began to deal with this in my heart that he brought me back into ministry. Why do you teach is James point. What are your motives? Every single one of us, whether you're a teacher or not, are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. By the way, Falwell, Jerry Falwell, who died recently, gave that sermon, changed my life. The Bible is clear that believers will not be judged for their sins and that salvation is a free gift. Yet, listen, it is equally clear that every believer's works will nevertheless be judged. We saw this just a few weeks ago in chapter 2, verse 12. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. You see, each of our life, each of our life's deeds 
are going to come before the judgment seat of Christ and the holy gaze of Christ is going to burn those works and what they're made of is going to be revealed for, for him to see and for us to see is what Paul says. Pastor Tim, I don't think that's going to happen. Here's what Paul says. First Corinthians three, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. And if any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay or or, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day look at your word, it's capital D. The day of judgment will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. And if what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved. Thank Jesus. But only as one escaping through the flames. Well, Pastor Tim, that's not evidence enough for me. I still don't think that's going to happen. Luke twelve forty eight, the words of Jesus From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. Friends, listen, if you are a teacher in the church, you've been given a position of greater influence. There will be a greater judgment for you. And not only will the words of teachers be judged, but their lives, did they match up with the words? This is a knife through my heart. Do I preach about the tongue this morning and then criticize you this afternoon? Do our teachers speak on faith and then they live faithless lives of doubt? See, a teacher's life must live out what they teach. Friends, listen, have you been gifted? Have you been gifted and entrusted with the responsibility to teach? James has a caution for you. Let it not be a position that many of us clamor for. Let no one teach out of wrong motives. Why? Because a greater judgment awaits those who teach God's people his word. When have you ever heard a pastor minimize the call to teach? This is what James is doing. Not minimize, but shrink the field. So James is the imaginary rebuttal. Who could dare teach? I mean, who's perfect enough and worthy enough to stand in that position of teacher? Who can preach? Who can teach Sunday school? Who can teach our teens and children? Who can teach our ladies? Well, James wants to console us. So first he gave us a command. Then he gave us a caution. Look at verse 2. You're going to see his consolation. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. Can I explain to you a couple words here? The word stumble means to fail spiritually. It means to sin. Notice what James did not say. He did not, you, he did not say you all stumble in many ways. He says we all stumble in many ways. Many ways is in the Greek perfect tense. It means and suggests that it's something that gets repeated. So James is saying this. He says we, teachers, we stumble and we keep stumbling. We sin and we keep sinning in many ways. The ways that we sin are broad. And he colludes himself with this. He says, though I hate to admit it, I still stumble with my words. I still stumble with my mouth. Listen to this consolation uh, as we take a whirlwind tour for just a moment. You remember Job? 
Job was a great man whom God called blameless and upright. But the final chapter of Job revealed that he had trouble controlling his tongue. Listen, listen, I am unworthy, Job says. How can I reply to you? I put a hand over my mouth. Job, a perfect and upright man, blameless. And he struggled with his mouth. Isaiah was a man of holiness who was granted the blessing of seeing God in all of his holiness on the throne with all these unbelievable creatures all around the throne. And what Job did as a response to that was he was moved to confess his own problems with his mouth. Woe to me, I am ruined for I am a man of unclean lips. Moses God called, whom God called the most humble man on earth. Yet the psalmist in Psalm 106 tells us that rash words came from Moses' lips. Peter, Paul, the saints and the church, Martin Luther, modern day people, Tim Ackley, you and I, we all struggle with our mouths. The writer of Proverbs summed it up best. He says, who can say I have kept my heart pure? I am clean and without sin. None of us can say that. James tells us that this is why we need to mature our faith. Now listen to this as I'm on the home stretch. We're talking about James's consolation after he's given us a command and he's put a caution in the hearts of all the teachers. Now he's consoling them. This is, friends, listen, this is why faith springs forth our actions and our actions mature and complete our faith. Do you remember I taught you that? Remember the passage was uh, James uh, 2 verse 22. You see that his faith, Abraham's faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. Now listen, what James's faith did was it sprang forth redemptive and righteous living. Controlling our tongues is one of the most righteous acts you'll ever give. And when, when Abraham lived righteously and when he was willing to sacrifice his only son Isaac, what it did was it worked together and it came back and it completed and matured his faith. See, that's what you and I do. Our faith springs forth righteous living. And when we respond in obedience, our righteous living increases and purifies, completes and makes complete our faith. So that's why I said two weeks ago that if you are in faith, believing in Jesus Christ, yet you live no righteous living, then your faith is hopelessly stunted. It cannot grow. Faith springs forth the discipline to control our tongues. And when we control them, we mature and complete our faith. The controlling, controlling the tongue leads us toward maturity, but none of us, including James, has arrived. James says, in effect, let's work on this. Church teachers, let's work on this. Let our faith and the power of God's spirit spring forth effort, spring forth discipline to control and bridle and channel our tongues, especially those who teach. Look what he says in the third part of, of verse 2 in James 3. He says this, he says, able to keep his whole body in check. If anyone is never at fault when he says he is a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. That word check is, is used for the English translation bridle. You're going to see it next week. It's a bridle that you would put in the horse's mouth to control the horse. This is the bit James says, able to keep a bridle in our tongues. 
You see, when my faith moves me to want to control my tongue and I exercise that desire, I complete and mature my faith. Now, I have a feeling I'm losing some of you. And that's all right. I've been studying and studying this, and it's still difficult to understand this. The word check, let me define it better. The word check, able to keep his whole body in check, it means to direct or restrain. Can you write that down? It means to direct or restrain. Able to keep his whole body directed or restrained from sin is what James is saying. But James consistently has two uses for the word body. And this is where I'm afraid I'm going to lose you. But he uses the word body in two ways. One, to refer to the individual. And the other, to refer, refer to the redemptive community, the corporate body. <coughs> this letter, friends, was written to churches. See, you and I would incorrectly approach the book of James or any book of the Bible by saying this is God's personal letter to me and just for me. This is God. The Bible is God's word and God's letter for his people, his redemptive community. Does it interface on the individual level? It sure does. But it's not just meant for Tim Ackley. It's meant that Tim Ackley learn to control his mouth so that I could lead God's people in a better way. You know that word perfect? A lot of people get scared in that. It doesn't mean sinless perfection. Before I hit number three, consolation, I about quit the ministry. It means complete. It means mature. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he is a complete and mature man able to direct and restrain his body. What James is saying, though, you ready? If any teacher is able to mature and complete their faith, then they are able to direct and restrain the church. This is why James wrote this book. It's for teachers to learn to direct the church along redemptive lines and directions so that we would be the people whose faith springs forth our actions and whose actions come around and mature and complete and strengthen and build their faith. James has commanded you and I not to aspire to the teaching position of the church for wrong motives, right? That's clear. And because, because why? Because Christ's judgment will be greater for those who teach than other believers. And no matter how well a person can teach, if he or she cannot control the tongue, hang it up. Teachers at Cornerstone, we need to control our tongues. A controlled tongue gives evidence of your faith and it comes from a pure heart filled with the good things of God. It is a work of righteousness that matures and completes God's people. So are you a teacher this morning? Are you a teacher of God's church? James has something to tell you. He's commanded you. Not not many presume to be teachers. Check your heart. Secondly, If you're called to teach, realize you're going to be called to a greater judgment. And if you're called to a greater judgment, be consoled by this. James himself hadn't arrived at perfection. But the more we bridle our tongues, the more we speak less and listen more, the more we speak to the hearts of people and edify them, build them up, lift them up, the more we do that, the bigger and more mature and the deeper our faith will be and the church will prosper. Amen.
Let's be teachers that do that. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, your word is not complicated. But it is something that only the Spirit of God can illuminate. It is something that only the Spirit of God can help us know. But it's not a mathematical equation. It's simple. It's the story from cover to cover of your redeeming love for your people. Your plan to build the church in this age that will bring glory to you, that will light forth a light of redemption and salt that will change people's lives. Lord, I pray for the teachers of our church. Lord, that they would check their hearts. Why are they teaching? Lord, that they would be galvanized, that they would be motivated, knowing that their judgment will be greater. The scrutiny will be closer. And Lord, may we be comforted. You don't have to be perfect to teach but we have to be growing. Our faith must be deepening and our faith must be springing forth righteous living. We must be strengthening your people. Lord, I pray for that. I pray for help. Be merciful and gracious, Father. And lift up our teachers. And in Jesus' name, amen.